Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking to GP Dr. Tamdin Ellis about sustainability and what practices can do to build greener approaches into the day-to-day running of the surgery and how GPs and their staff work. Tamsin is director and co-chair of Greener Practice, a UK primary care network focused on sustainability and a GP associate at the Centre for Sustainable Healthcare. In this conversation, Tamsin discusses some practical steps that practices and clinicians can take to help tackle the climate crisis and how sustainability and greener approaches can come into play in patient consultations and how practices engage with local communities. She also explains some of the resources Greener Practice and others have to help GPs, why it's important that general practice engages with sustainability and how getting involved in this work can make your practice a better place to work and improve staff wellbeing. I'm really pleased to be joined this week by Dr. Tamsin Ellis. Tamsin is a GP in London who's very active in work around sustainability and tackling the climate crisis. She's a director and co-chair of Greener Practice, a UK primary care network focused on sustainability and a GP associate at the Centre for Sustainable Healthcare, which is an organisation that develops knowledge and resources to support the NHS and other health systems to reach net zero. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Tamsin. Thanks for having me. You were actually on one of the first episodes of the podcast we ever recorded back in 2021, so yeah, quite a long time ago now. Do you think that over the past two years, sustainability has become more important in the NHS? Do you think people are more engaged in greener issues and in what way have things changed over that time? I think things have certainly changed since I was last speaking on this podcast. I think there's been a lot more interest in sustainability. And I think the nature of the climate crisis has meant that there's been more events that have brought it to people's attention and focus. I also think Green at NHS has done more for kind of bringing it to people's attention within healthcare. And we've seen that in terms of interest of people coming on courses, joining greener practice, being part of it. So it's definitely changed in terms of me walking into a room and people knowing what I'm talking about versus people saying, I don't know anything about this. The NHS has got quite ambitious targets around net zero by 2040. Do you think we're doing enough? Are are we going to get to that point, do you think? So it is an ambitious target and I think it should be, but I don't think we're doing enough at all. And I think what we're not doing enough of is there's lots of energy to do things, but there's just no time and we're all completely overstretched, overworked and we know how difficult it is in healthcare at the moment. So I think the key thing is the funding isn't there to follow up what people want to do for these plans and to understand what we need to do to get to net zero. I think there's lots of work going on, but from what I can see on the ground, there's not nearly enough to get us to those targets. I know there has been lots of good work happening and there has been reductions, but I think it's going to take a lot more to get us to those targets. And what do you think we need for that? Is is it more funding? Is it more people dedicated to just working on that? Is that the kind of thing you'd like to see happen? So as I think with anything that's sort of encouraging behaviour change in the NHS, it's sort of from all sides, isn't it? Because we need buy-in, we need people to want this and think it's part of their roles. I think we need protected time from my side in primary care. You know, I love the fact there's all these lunch and learn sessions and things and education, but there's no time in the day to do it. So I think having protected time, having protected roles, and this not being additionality, this not being something extra to add to your day, but something that's embedded and part of commissioning, part of policy decisions, part of what's our day-to-day and making it really easy is what's needed. And I think part of that is incentives, funding, but also kind of championing it on the ground and making it look attractive to be part of it. Obviously, you've been championing the cause, as I mentioned earlier, of greener general practice for some time now. So why do you think it's really important for GPs and other people in primary care to engage with this? So 
So when I first started, part of the reason I started getting involved in primary care is there was was nothing that was sort of mentioning us. There was lots of kind of big, shiny hospital plans. And I was thinking, well, we're 90% of care. Where is primary care in all of this? And I think that still is a problem. So I think as GPs, we're often wanting a seat at the table of discussions and not having things imposed on us. So I think part of the reason I think it's important is so that we have decisions and discussions around how this is done and not done to us. I also think GPs are in a really good position in practices. We're at the heart of the community. We really understand what's happening on the ground. We have really good relationship building. We have a a large understanding and we're part of that care, looking at preventative side of things, looking at long-term conditions. We know that sustainable healthcare, the big impacts are around the clinical side. And as clinicians, we're in a really good position to be looking at that in the community. But the thing that really keeps me going is that there's kind of all these co-benefits that we can see. And I think that's co-benefits for patients, but also for us as GPs and people working in primary care. So lots of the things that, that kind of brought me to sustainable healthcare have, have made my role better and made things, lots of things better in my life. And I think that's something that also keeps me going and thinking that it should be part of what we're doing day to day. What are some of those co-benefits? When we're looking at sustainable healthcare, there's kind of two strands of it. There's what's happening in healthcare that's causing emissions. And then there's what's happening to the environment that's impacting people's health. And in terms of both of those things, there's kind of co-benefit. So for the patients in particular, some of those things might be looking at how people are eating, how they're interacting with nature, how we're deprescribing. So all of these things that we're doing, which are reducing emissions, are also impacting people's health in a beneficial way. And there's been some great examples of projects happening in primary care. So people having community gardens, people doing blue and green prescriptions. So that's kind of prescribing nature or prescribing going to blue spaces such as lakes and oceans and things. Also, you know, how people are eating. And I think all these things are really complicated. It's not a simple thing because we have to think about what matters to patients. But embedding all these things means that we get people moving more, we get people eating better, we get people out into nature. And all of these things we know are beneficial for our health. One of the things I often hear people say when I've watched GPs speak at events and things when we're talking about climate change is that it is really important for doctors to engage with this because the climate crisis is a health crisis as well. Could you just explain a bit about that to people who may not have heard that before? What does all that mean? It's exactly that. I often say that's the basic terms is that the climate crisis is also a health crisis. And so that comes in lots of different ways. People often explain it in terms of direct and indirect effects. So the direct effects are things from extreme weather events. And you may well have seen that and people may have seen that in their practices in the last couple of years. So we know that when there's temperature rise when we go through those heat waves you know this year I saw more people you know when I was filing results I was seeing more people with AKIs acute kidney injuries I was seeing people who were on medications that might be affected by the heat coming in more so there's kind of the things that are directly related to heat that might also affect cardiovascular disease other direct impacts might be related to things like air pollution on respiratory conditions, but we know that impacts every organ in the body, so that can affect things as well. And then there's the kind of indirect things, so that might be the social impacts on people's mental health, that might be disruption from things like flooding. Alongside all of these, we know that all of the impacts from climate change on health are also impacting health inequalities. Those people who are often least responsible for these changes are impacted most and impacted hardest by all of this. 
And alongside all of that, there's also the impact on systems. So we know that hospitals were flooded last year. And so I think there's also an imperative there to mitigate it because it's going to affect how people are coming into our services as a result of these extreme weather events and those indirect effects in terms of you know forced migration. And that's UK-based, but of course, across the world, you could do a whole other podcast on global health and, and how that impacts people, particularly in the global south. You mentioned that general practice obviously is really under pressure. The whole NHS is under pressure. People have got too much work to do already. So what would you say to convince people listening to this that sustainability and greener general practice is something they should be focusing their time and energy on at the minute? It's absolutely that, isn't it? You know, it's really hard and we're all so tired and it's like, don't ask me to do another thing and tick another box. And that's not what we want. So I would say you're probably already doing sustainable things already, particularly with the pandemic. We saw a lot more remote working, paperless working. So it might be just about optimising the things that you're already doing that are sustainable. I currently am working with a couple of practices and saying, you know, what are you doing well already? What's already happening that we could build on? And maybe what's some things that we could improve on? I think this isn't about that additionality of asking people to do more. It's about looking at what we can do to improve what we're doing already and just put it across the whole system about what we might do. And again, thinking about those benefits. So we often talk about the principles of sustainable healthcare that are related to the Centre of Sustainable Healthcare and the work that they've done. And that those four principles are prevention patient empowerment, lean systems and low carbon alternatives. And thinking about lean systems, you know, it might be looking at things that are happening in the practice that are frustrating, that people find difficult and actually having some time to think, well, actually, are patients coming to multiple long term condition reviews? Could we simplify that? Or asking people who are in the practice, who are you know, the secretaries or the admin staff saying, what are you finding difficult about processing? Are there ways that we could do things that are beneficial for you and also the environment? So I would say it's not about asking people to do more. It's about asking what is going to make things better and trying to look for those triple wins that are good for our patients, our staff and the planet and also those wider social issues. So and I suppose for people who might be thinking, you know, actually, I'm worried, worried about the bottom line, there are financial implications and there are things that can save money as well. So that would also be a benefit that would help people to invest in this in order to create money saving later down the line. Is that how you would advise people to start if they want to do something is just to kind of look at what they're doing now and think about small things perhaps they could change? So I think it depends how you're working and what kind of practice or environment you're working in. But my first thing to say would be to follow the energy. I could tell you all about the hotspots and where you're going to have the most impact, but it can be really hard to bring people with you. So I often say the first thing is just look where the energy is in the team and try and get a team approach. So trying to get someone from admin, someone from management, someone from the clinical team, hopefully a nurse and a GP, maybe a pharmacist, and getting that whole team approach and saying, what do we all agree want to do or is there energy to do certain things first I think starting small is often good because you can celebrate those small easy wins they might not be the big impactful things but they might be quite visible or they might be exciting or they might be good for well-being and all those things can build and that's certainly what I've seen in practices where we've been successful has been those very small things people have got behind and then it's kind of built into possibly having a small amount of time to then think about those bigger things like looking at polypharmacy audits or something that's going to be really big to sort of 
build on that. So I'd say go with the energy, have a team. And then when you're working on things, have a look at how you're going to process that through again. So thinking about quality improvement and think about mapping, it sounds really boring, but sometimes process mapping it out and thinking about those cycles of quality improvement is really helpful to keep that momentum going and expecting a bit of failure along the way. You know, not everything's going to work and sometimes people don't have time. So it's just kind of working within the capacity that you have in the team. Patients do come into play as well, don't they? I mean, you were talking there about practices that have got gardens and done those sorts of things. You can obviously get patients involved in all of this as well, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's the elusive PPG, the patient participation (laughs) group. Um, And we have spoken to various patient participation groups. It depends whether you have a very active one or not. But they can be really helpful to get ideas. So we got a blister pack recycling scheme as a result of a patient telling us about the fact that there was one locally. It can be really helpful to involve patients. And we have some work going on in greener practice at the moment, looking at sort of case uh, discussions or cases that might involve planetary health. So thinking about generally how they're the health of people is connected to the planet and how it comes up so much in our consultations and I know there's been lots of work going on for example with air pollution where people are looking at things that are beneficial particularly for children and young people where patients can be really powerful with the stories that they tell and how they get involved with this so patients are very much part of this and hopefully we're going to get a patient group as part of greener practice coming so I think it can be a really helpful thing to bring it back to what's important to people and our populations. Air pollution that's something that obviously everybody's affected by you sometimes people think about climate change as like really big things that are happening far away but obviously there's a real problem in lots of cities and towns with local air pollution and that is something that really does bother local people as well doesn't it definitely and in in Islington where I'm working at the moment we took part in a pilot where I had an an air pollution monitor as part of work that we're doing with greener practice and it was amazing to see just going down one road versus another and it's completely shifted the way that I now travel to work and get to work and it's meant that I can show patients data that's collected locally and we have leaflets and posters that are all now available on the global action plan website so that you don't make people feel oh gosh I'm in this really polluted area what do I do so it's got a checklist of all the ways in which you can kind of improve your access to clean air or reduce your exposure to dirty air and it's also looking at how we can review that in health so for example with asthma reviews you know you'd ask about smoking you'd also ask about air pollution so it's got things like you know is there a way you can actively travel to school because that's often where most children are exposed to the most amount of air pollution but for me the biggest impact really is going down side streets so not going down the busier roads. You mentioned greener practice a few times. If people listening don't know exactly what greener practice is, can you explain a bit about what it is that you do? I'd love to because I love talking about greener practice. (laughs) So um, we are the UK Sustainability Primary Care Network. So we are at our heart a network of people. So a group of people, anybody can join. There's no sort of eligibility criteria. You just have to want to be working on primary care sustainability. We have pharmacists, we have social prescribers, we have GPs, nurses, pharmacy techs. We have have some secondary care hospital doctors mainly in respiratory and we have local groups so we have the first group started in Sheffield in 2017 and now there's 34 groups across the UK so that's England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland and within those groups each local group runs slightly differently so just to give London as an example we have North and South London now and co-chairs that run those groups we meet about every six weeks sometimes online sometimes in person so we recently had a plant-based meal where we went to South London and uh, ate nice food and talked about 
about plant-based health professionals and various other things and talking about local things so sharing local resources sharing local issues so that's one part of it the other part of it is we have special interest groups so we have eight national special interest groups and that's to look at specific things that people might be working on at a national level so that's things like education we have a QI, we have a clinical group, uh, we have working with organisations, and some of those have some spin-off meetings as well. So, for example, if you work in an ICS or a health board, there's a meeting for that. So those groups are amazing because you can have a question and go to that group and then they'll hopefully be able to give you an answer. And we try and collate some of that information and put it on our website and share those resources and some of those talks. And the final thing is that we are a community interest company. So we work in the interest of our community. We're not for profit, but it means that we can partner and be commissioned with organisations. So, for example, we were commissioned by Health Foundation to create a toolkit for asthma. Um, It's all free on our website site and you can go through it's sort of built so that it's really easy off the shelf qi tools it's got you know accurate templates it's got downloadable searches it's meant to be for sort of busy people working in general practice who just want a simple thing you can get everything you need in one place so we have done some various things in terms of learning and education and working with different organizations to create resources to make this easy and fun in primary care so that's in a nutshell greener practice but we're really open to ideas and people joining and you can check it all out on our website the asthma thing, obviously, that is something that has been really pushed as as a, an area where you can sort of start making quite a significant difference to carbon emissions is by transferring people over onto lower carbon inhalers. Is it starting to make a difference, do you think, that push on inhalers? So I think it's been attractive for people working in general practice because it's a big impact area. It's clinical, so it's what we're doing day to day. And in England, there was some incentive schemes last year that have now ended and there are some local schemes running. And I think there has been lots of success. I think my real key point to come back to is that, you know, it does have an environmental impact, but it's really about good clinical care. We know that the state of play of asthma is we have lots of preventable deaths from asthma and that people overuse their salbutamol inhaler or possibly don't know about the inhalers they're taking. So a lot of what the work around asthma has been is around getting people on the right device for them and you know taking it at the right time and people understanding that better so again those principles thinking about prevention and patient empowerment but also that low carbon alternative of which inhaler device to be on but i think partly where people have gone a bit wrong really is kind of ringing people up and saying do you want to change your inhaler for the environment because that's not really what we're asking people to do it's saying it's about reviewing it holistically and thinking what's best for the patient. So I don't really mention the environment when I'm talking to patients. I say, do you use your spacer? Would you like a device that has a dose counter? Do you know which device you're taking? So I think lots of the success really from what I've seen of the data so far has been around possibly the salamol switching um, and looking at changing people from the Ventolin, which is the kind of high carbon inhaler to salamol because that's a like-for-like switch um, with a, a much lower carbon footprint, about half the amount. Um, so that's kind of been an easy one. But in terms of those switching to DPIs to the dry powder inhalers that has to be done in the right way with the patient and there there could be really beneficial things for that I've been starting to use the MART regime a lot more with my patients and having really good outcomes so I think thinking about it as being that sort of patient-centered and doing it for the right reasons um, and that there's this sort of beneficial side product of it being good for the environment I often say the best thing we can do for the environment is get people to stop smoking it's good medicine basically it's trying to do that first and foremost 
you just mentioned very briefly about polypharmacy and things like that. Is one of the biggest gains where you can start really doing stuff around sustainability, is it around prescribing? Is that one of the big key areas? Yeah, I, th- I think that's been a misconception. And it was certainly something that I thought when I was coming into it was like, oh, I can do a recycling project or, you know, you're thinking about the waste in the NHS. But when they've carbon footprinted the, the whole of the NHS, in particular looking at primary care, our biggest carbon hotspots are all in prescribing. And that's the whole life cycle of prescribing. And we know there's a huge amount of waste within how people take their medicines. Often people don't take their medicines. So I think, again, it's coming back to that. What's good generally? Because if we think about de-prescribing or prescribing, there's quite a lot of work going on around frailty and older adults. And there's some great projects going on around looking at medication waste there. Um, and de-prescribing in general, you know, we were doing a project recently around PRN, those kind of as and when use drugs, and looking at why people are getting kind of 200 paracetamol a month. Are they, are they using all of those? So sometimes it's really simple. But I think we were all doing our reviews of patients who are on 10 or more medications and just clicking through. But it's kind of just taking a bit more of an interest into where is the waste here and how could we impact it? And that's certainly in primary care, one of our biggest emissions are coming from prescribing. How does this all come into patient consultations as well? So I've been surprised how much I've seen it come in. I did do a short Radio 4 talk called Climate Consultations where I sort of do a day in my life of how it comes in. So it might be that child with asthma where suddenly you're realising the connection with them walking to school down a busy road. It might be that older person in the cold home who's having lots of rescue packs with their antibiotics. It might be somebody who's been affected from coming from an area of displacement and having post-traumatic stress disorder. As soon as you start looking at it with a sustainability lens, I'm sure you'll start seeing patients who are being impacted by it. And I'm working in an urban area. I'm sure there's lots more in, a, in rural areas in terms of both the benefits of how people feel when they go out into nature versus people who are having difficulties in area of deprivation. All of these things, I'm still learning to finesse what's coming into the consultation, but it's been interesting. I've just started thinking about food a bit more and how that impacts. And and again, it's not about pushing this on this. I think people often think, oh, you don't want to be preachy and you know say your views. And I'm certainly not doing that, but I'm just being curious with patients and trying to understand what their lives are like and trying to understand where these things come in. And we're all part of our lived environment. We're all being impacted by it. So I think it is coming into the consultation more and more. The other thing I mentioned at the start, the other organisation you're really involved with is the Centre for Sustainable Healthcare. Can you explain a bit more about what it is that that centre does and what you do there? As you mentioned at the beginning, I think the the CSH or the Centre for Sustainable Healthcare is an educational charity. They do lots of training, but they also have lots of resources on their website as well. For about a year, I volunteered with them. And during that time, they said, do you want to try and help us write the primary care course? I'd never done anything like that before, but I said, I'll give it a go. Spoke to loads of people and we managed to pull together this course, which has changed a lot over the years and a lot more has been added to it. So we now deliver that course about three times a year and I help on their introduction course as well. And sometimes I deliver some of the training on their behalf because they also do a lot of work on sustainable quality improvement. So again, for any educators listening, they have great resources on the SASQI website that have you know you can just download and they do lots of work with medical schools and educators and they've even started doing kind of health board training so they work both in the UK and internationally so it's been really interesting meeting people from all over the world through the CSH and the networks that they have on their website as well. And what does the primary course cover? Who's it for? Is it for GPs practice? Is it for anybody who works in primary care? Is it specifically aimed at doctors? 
So it's anybody who works in primary care and there's sections of it that it's not just for clinicians, it's about management as well. We've had some really interesting people come on it. So we have had GPs, of course, but nurses, pharmacists, managers. Some places across the country have managed to get some scholarships for the course. So some through the RCGP, which has meant that a group of people have come. And again, some boards or ICSs have paid for groups of people to come and get trained up and then kind of develop action learning sets after the course, because it's meant to be a really practical approach to helping you through how you might develop a project alongside some e-learning. Talking about training, do you think it's important that training around climate change should it become a key part of for example your undergraduate training for doctors and for GP trainees so it has been put into the curriculum for both so it should be that everybody coming to is now trained up on it but what I'd really like to see is that it's not another thing it's not kind of you know you do a diabetes module and then you do a sustainability module I think it should be that you're having it in each part so you're looking at it through a lens of sustainability a bit like we do with inequalities that it comes into all of the branches of medicine and so what I'd like to see is that it's just embedded into everything that we're doing and we're having a look at it across the board rather than than it being another thing for medical students to learn. I think if it becomes part of our culture, that's the way that we'll move this forward and it will be more mainstream. One of the things that I did want to ask you about is the GMC's updated good medical practice recently. So the new version comes into effect at the end of January. I mean, it talks about taking sustainability into account when you make decisions about medicines and also sort of encouraging doctors to potentially consider getting involved in in groups or actions around sustainability. I mean, what were your thoughts about all of that when you saw that? So, of course, it is a step in the right direction. I think for lots of us working in sustainability, it didn't go far enough. There was consultation at the time. And I think it's unfortunate the wording of what they've put because it's almost like, you know, you can do it if it's okay for patients. And and what we're saying about sustainable healthcare is this is really aligned. We're not trying to say that this is going to be something that we're choosing the environment over patients. It's that it's integrated into putting patients first. So I think the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change has written back to say, that we would like them to review it because five years isn't another five years later in the climate crisis. And it really needs to be something in which it's practical and easy for clinicians and something that we all want to do rather than a kind of, oh, you can do it if X, Y, Z kind of thing. So I wasn't involved in the consultation, but a few of my colleagues were who I think felt it wasn't going far enough. So hopefully there'll be more to come on reviewing that, but certainly good that it's mentioned this year. The climate crisis as we're talking about is obviously a massive challenge that's going to require significant change, you know, not just in the NHS, but national, global levels. Quite disappointingly, we've seen the current government rowing back on some real commitments it had made around net zero. I mean, how do you feel more generally sort of outside the NHS about the way things are going with regards to climate change? Do you have hope that we can turn things around and make a difference? I think it's really disappointing what's happening at the moment. I think it's causing a lot of eco anxiety, whether people like that term or not. I think people are really worried about this. I think what what I find really difficult is the narratives around what is happening, because I think there's so many positives for making these changes. And often we see the government saying it's about taking things away. You know, it's making things, our homes colder, it's having less choice. And what I think it does is actually gives us more of things. You know, we talk about fuel poverty and insulation and saying, actually, this is about making people's health better and people's homes better. Um, you know, it's about people eating better. It's about people going out in spaces in different ways. So all of those co-benefits that I've mentioned 
I think it's about the fact that this is a really big opportunity for health benefits now. In terms of how much investment it would be, it would be a very small proportion in terms of the overall GDP. I think it's quoted that it's sort of 1% to, to put these things in place. I think it's sort of difficult that what we're aiming towards is being so disrupted by what's happening at the moment. But I've recently been starting to read Active Hope to try and get me to kind of feel feel better about that. And I was at a conference and I saw Michael Marmot speak, who I'm really a fan of. And he said, to be truly radical is to make hope possible rather than despair convincing. And that's by Raymond Williams, a Welsh novelist. And that's what's really stuck with me, that I think we need to make the hope possible and the despair um, less convincing. So I think that's what I'm working towards at the moment. And I've seen that with Greener Practice. You know, we are, we started off as a very small group of people and it's just grown really rapidly and we see how innovative people are and how much people can create changes on the ground. I think that's the thing to hold on to when we see all the news of doom and gloom. Outrage and Optimism is also a great podcast for that to say, what can we look towards for hope? And as an organisation, I think we try and be a supportive network that's full of hope and full of ideas and full of we can do this. And I think if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be able to get up in the morning. So I think that's that's been a big part of trying to shift for me personally when the news was so difficult. I mean, I think that is a big part of it, isn't it? It's, it's about trying to find like-minded people. You can get so overwhelmed by how horrendous the whole situation is. And sometimes it must be very, well, it is very easy to just feel that what you do, it's not going to even touch the sides. But then if everybody does a little bit of that, it will make a difference. So I think it's really important to find support because it can be a really lonely journey if you're thinking you want to do something and you can't find anyone. I think it depends what the people who are listening want to do. It might be that you're really struggling and you're burning out and it might not be the time. And so it might be if you want to take small steps and just see how it feels. For people who have lots of energy and want to join, there's lots of people out there who, who want you to join. So Greener Practice is a good place to start. Some of the courses at Centre for Sustainable Healthcare. See Sustainability is another great website that's got lots of free resources on it. So it, it might be just starting that journey and dipping your toe in and seeing what feels good and where, where the energy for you is. I think more generally as a citizen, we have ways of doing this as well. You know, writing to your MP, looking at those personal decisions like who you're banking with. Realistically, we as Greener Practice, we sort of talk about that ripple effect and the fact that you can say, oh, I'm only one person. But suddenly we're thousands of people who are doing this. And you don't know what your, you know, your circle of influence is and how far this message is spreading. And, you know, I've even had it in my family telling family members and suddenly at work they're doing things. So it's just sort of talking about it can be a really powerful thing and joining that collective narrative and the fact that, you know, small seeds can grow, that you can start this and do something and see where it takes you. But we always talk about looking after yourself at the same time because we don't want people to burn out within. I read an article that said burnout people on a burnout planet are not going to do any good. So we do need people to sort of think about themselves. And that hopefully is part of what Greener Practice is doing. In my practice, we've just been doing a sort of nourishing and flourishing green group where we've been going to the community garden, cooking nice things and talking about green changes, but also kind of nourishing ourselves and thinking about how we can collectively work together. And at the beginning, I was thinking, oh, I don't want to do this after a really long day, but it's been so nice to get to know members of staff who I don't tend to talk to as much. And it's been a really positive experience. And for those people who are thinking that's a bit touchy-feely and not for me, you know, it might be a different way of doing that. But we have seen changes in terms of retention, well-being, you know, all these things that GPs worry about. It was something that I went looking for when I went looking for practices that were interested in this. So it might be that newer generations of GPs coming through, having been educated about 
that are looking for that too. You know, GPs, are, uh, they, they run their own businesses as well. So there's there's changes you can make at that kind of level, which are obviously going to have an impact. But potentially, you know, these are things that you can do as a team and, and it can be a kind of quite a bonding experience if everybody gets enthusiastic about it. There's obviously lots of benefits around making your practice almost like a nicer place to work because you're you're involved and engaged in these sorts of projects. Yeah, absolutely. And that might be a small thing, even kind of like, you know, we bought some plants, people think, oh, infection control, I'm going to say things about the plants. But we managed to get infection control to tell us which plants were infection control, (laughs) you know, and how you can have them. So I I think it can be a really good thing. Coming back to the money, there is lots of good evidence that this saves money. It's a whole big area because some people have problems with their estates. So the estates can't happen for everybody. But for lots of people, they're saving money on their bills, doing green changes. Um, There's an amazing project in Cornwall where they looked at the printers. So it might be worth looking at your printer where you're working because actually the NHS get often free printers but the toners cost a fortune and so they've saved 50 grand now across a large practice area which they've managed to reinvest in green changes through medical centre is a sort of gold standard practice and they've saved a lot of money doing it some practices I've worked with lately have already saved about three grand so if you're more interested in the money there is ways to follow the money as well I wouldn't underestimate the well-being element of it because it's certainly affected how I feel coming to work and having conversations with patients because it's all linked into these kind of person-centered shared care, decision-making, trauma-informed care, you know, all these things that I've learned about through sustainability. I think, you know, it's still a tough job, but I think I've brought that to work a bit more and with my team. And that's been a really nice change that I didn't expect along the way with sustainability. Well, that's a nice place to end it. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Emma. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it's been lovely to be on. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening and thanks to Tamsin for taking the time to talk with me. I'm back next week for our regular news review, so please do join me then. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the latest news affecting general practice and access a wealth of other resources on our website at gponline.com.